Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is William Hartung, Director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy. Bill, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Your work focuses on defense spending. So just to start us out, how much do we spend on defense and help us make sense of whatever that number is? How does it compare historically with what we spend? How does it compare with other budget priorities? And how does it compare with peer countries? Sure. Well, counting related work on nuclear warheads at the Department of Energy, uh, we're now over $750 billion a year, uh, which is substantially more than was spent at the height of the Korean or Vietnam Wars or the Reagan buildup of the 80s, one of the highest levels essentially since World War II. Um, so it's an enormous sum. And it's um, about three times what China spends, 10 times what Russia spends. It's more than the next 11 countries combined. And many of those are U.S. allies, Japan, Korea, Germany, the U.K., and so forth. So um, on a sheer spending level, uh, there's really no comparison between the United States and any other country in the world. Uh, and it also consumes a large part of the U.S. budget. Uh, more than half the discretionary budget goes to the Pentagon. Um, and just as a point of comparison, Pentagon budget is more than a dozen times the budgets for State Department and Agency for National Development combined. Uh, so quite a tidy sum. I am frequently frustrated by the arbitrary budgetary partitions that are normal in D.C., but uh, I think tend to obscure the amount that we actually spend. So there's the Defense Department, but there are also bu budgets for intelligence, which has taken on a more martial quality in the post-9-11 era. There's funding for nuclear weapons in the Department of Energy, like you mentioned. And then there's some non-foreign policy uh, national security budgets like that of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Talk about how the national security spending is kind of splayed out like this and what's a more inclusive estimate of how much money taxpayers actually spend on it. Well, I think if you look at everything that's related to national security, be it at home or abroad, uh, you would get more like $1.2 trillion or above. Um, a lot of that is veterans affairs. It's a consequence of the post-911 wars, where that's now mushroomed to over $250 billion a year. You've got Homeland Security, which is an amalgam of departments that was created after September 11th. Uh, that's about $50 billion a year. Then you've got intelligence, which some people think is hidden in other parts of the budget, but certainly is a, a cost. You've got military aid. Uh, you can look at you know, how you feel about what percentage of our interest on the debt could be attributable to Pentagon spending, given its proportion of the budget. So all these things together, I mean, they're all national security. So the idea that the Pentagon is kind of hived off is not necessarily the most uh, useful way to look at it. President Biden, uh, to get back to just defense uh, budgets, though, recommended $715 billion uh, as the top line figure for the next Pentagon budget. And the uh, Armed Services Committee in both the House and Senate each recommended roughly an additional $25 billion on top of that uh, initial request. Um, uh, talk about what you, I mean, how, how does, uh, how do policymakers decide on this? 
it doesn't seem to me like there's a an effort each year to evaluate this from the top to bottom and see what our strategy requires, et cetera. It seems like every year a new lot comes around and they just kind of green light it. Yes. I mean, in an ideal world, they'd kind of look at the situation in the world, look at the biggest challenges, see if the Pentagon budget aligns with addressing those. But often what you have is kind of arbitrary numbers based on kind of, you know, one or two talking points, or you have members who are more concerned about facilities in their district than they are about actually what defends us. So if you you watch some of these hearings, it can be painful because the amount of time spent on substantive discussion is very limited. For example, uh, Rokana in the House Armed Services Committee Deliberations said, well, we're getting out of Afghanistan, and yet you want to increase the Pentagon budget. Why is that? And a fellow Democrat's basically said China. No elaboration, no kind of argumentation, just China. And a lot of the advocates of the $25 billion increase kind of harken back to the 200, uh, 2018 National Defense Strategy and then a commission, the National Defense Strategy Commission, that was convened by Congress. And that commission said, well, you know, we really should spend 3 to 5% uh, inflation-adjusted increases Every year, and you know, practically in perpetuity. Um, and if you did that, the Pentagon budget would be well above a trillion dollars just by itself, without all those other categories we mentioned, uh, within five or six years. So a lot of the um, advocates of this number kind of harken back to that report, which was based on an offhand comment and some testimony by uh, James Mattis, was not a detailed analysis. Uh, and so the $25 billion is supposed to get them into that 3 for three to 5% range, which they claim is necessary to address the uh, rising threat from China. Uh, but they don't elaborate on that. And when they do, they often use misguided uh, arguments like, well, China's going to quadruple its nuclear force in the next 10 years, and therefore we need to ramp up uh, the nuclear modernization program and so forth. When the U.S. stockpile is you know, the active stockpile is 13 times China's. And frankly, even if they did that, deterrence would still hold. So, um, you know, you've, you've got these kind of talking points that are used. That they also say, well, you know, we're spending a smaller share of gross domestic product than we used to. But of course, our economy is, is huge compared to what it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. So the idea that you would allot a certain chunk of the GDP to the Pentagon makes no sense, uh, but yet that's the figure they choose to, uh, you know, use for their to support the notion that we need these big increases. Yeah, it's a good example of how disconnected military spending is from strategy, because DC is currently engaged in uh, quite a bit of a, a debate about what strategy towards China is and ought to be. And in fact, the Biden administration doesn't seem to me like they've landed on a specific strategy. And if you don't know what the strategy is, I'm not clear how you could know what kind of material you need to fulfill that strategy. It just seems like they say the word China and suddenly um, you know, everyone's just supposed to pony up the dough. Um, I've always thought of one of the most striking examples of the kind of pathologies that are embedded in how we pay for the military is this sort of recurring event where 
the armed services committees or whomever will have the top military brass uh, to testify. And they'll they'll tell Congress quite directly that, you know, the items in the budget, whether it's a new Navy ship or an aircraft or a weapon or whatever, are not really what the military needs and we shouldn't really be procuring them. And the politicians who are normally, you know, quite excessively, if uh, performatively deferential toward anyone in military uniform, will essentially dismiss the advice of the generals and vote for allocating money that, that way anyways, because it's being manufactured in their hometown or because the defense industry donates money to their campaign or whatever. Uh, in fact, I just read recently that one Admiral Michael Gilday attended a defense industry conference and asked them to stop lobbying Congress for, quote, the ships you want to build and the aircraft that we don't need. So he's going around Congress to tell the lobbyists, stop incentivizing Congress to do what we don't want. Um, explain this phenomenon to us. Well, I think you hit it on the head uh, with the notion of pork barrel politics. Um, you know, the F-35, according to Lockheed Martin, which of course has some incentive to exaggerate, but nonetheless, they claim they've got components of it being built in 46 states. And there's a caucus in the House of about 40, the F-35 caucus, that kind of keeps an eye out, not only on keeping the F-35 funded at Air Force and Pentagon levels, but trying to add more virtually every year. Um, so there's that element. And I think there's also not a lot of deep thinking about strategy on the part of most members of Congress. There's some exceptions. Um, so the kind of hometown impact has a kind of a overarching um, influence uh, compared to saying, what do we actually need? Because you could, even if you said, we need three to 5%, we need 10%, we need to double the Pentagon budget, you know, as absurd as you would go in terms of how much you still need to know what to spend it on. You know, I mean, is it going to be vulnerable aircraft carriers? Are you going to keep a huge army when there's never going to be a land war with China? Uh, are you going to keep the F-35, which uh, cannot perform up to even standards in some cases of prior combat aircraft? Uh, and there's many other examples where um, it, it's it's not just about the money. And Adam Smith has made this point. It's about how you spend the money. And there's very little discussion of that in Congress uh, relative to things like, you know, this is in my district. And of course, once you want to keep something in your district, you'll gin up some arguments that, that sound strategic to try to keep it there. But that's not the driving force. A, a recent Congressional Budget Office report released uh, earlier this month outlined three different options for cutting the defense budget by a trillion dollars over the next decade which might sound a bit extreme, but you've pointed out is only about a 14% reduction over that decade. Um, explain the options proposed in that uh, report. Well, it's interesting because, well, the first option doesn't change the strategy at all. It just says we can achieve the current strategy, which is based on great power competition, by dealing with regional powers like Iran and North Korea, a continued global counterterrorism mission, so it's basically saying all those things could be done for a, you know a trillion dollar savings. So spend six billion plus over the next ten years instead of seven a trillion rather a billion would get lost in the couch. Um, 
So, um, you know, basically they said you could cut the force by about 20% and still achieve those missions, perhaps in some cases taking longer to get to the the place where the, the fighting is supposed to occur, but nonetheless uh, could be done. Um, and then the second scenario relies more on coalition warfare and says the U.S. isn't going to be the first one to rush in there with boots on the ground. So kind of a limited use of U.S. troops. And then uh, long-range strike and other over-the-horizon uh, tactics. And then the third one is about defense of the commons. It says, okay, um, dominate air, sea, and space. Make sure uh, commerce can proceed. And if you have to deal with another power, let the allies in the region take the lead, uh, do things like blockades, no-fly zones, uh, build a more mobile larger navy at the expense of the army and so forth. So these are, these are still all strategies that call for global military reach that reference the same challenges that are in the national defense strategy. Uh, and that was the kind of the mission they were mandate they were given is, you know, uh, under more or less current circumstances, how would you save a trillion dollars? So it doesn't go into things like, are we building too big a nuclear arsenal or the wrong capabilities? In the nuclear area. It doesn't look at overhead and waste at the Pentagon. It doesn't look at closing unnecessary bases. Uh, and, and probably most important, it, it doesn't take a new look at what are the most uh, urgent challenges. So it doesn't talk about climate change, pandemics, other things that threaten people's lives but are not military in nature. So it's, it's a very um, contained product, but even under those circumstances, uh, it says you could save a trillion over 10 years, which I think should be something that Congress discusses rather than just uh, throwing more money at an already huge budget. Why do you argue that the, uh, the planned upgrade to our nuclear arsenal uh, is an area ripe for cutting? Well, I think the biggest question to me is why still have intercontinental ballistic missiles? In a crisis, the president would have a matter of minutes to decide whether to launch them or lose them. Uh, and so if there was a false alarm uh, in that short time frame, you could have the risk of an accidental nuclear war. Um, and with uh, ballistic missiles on submarines and the bomber force, there's more than enough to deter uh, another country from attacking the United States or its allies with nuclear weapons. And there's an organization, Global Zero, that's done a more detailed kind of alternative nuclear posture that says, let's get rid of ICBMs, let's have a smaller number of ballistic missile submarines, and let's have some bombers in reserve. And as long as we're not engaged in warfighting strategies and plans for first strikes, and we're just basically looking at a deterrence-only policy, uh, that would be more than adequate. Uh, but of course, in Congress, it's hard even to get uh, you know, trim the budget of the new ICBM that's being built, or even study alternatives uh, before you even take action on it, uh, largely because of the ICBM lobby of, you know, senators who have um, ICBM bases in their districts or major ICBM, major ICBM activity, and also contractors like Northrop Grumman. So I think in, in terms of the modernization program, I think spending $264 billion over the lifetime of a new ICBM uh, is unwise and unnecessary. And then I think you could go smaller on other elements of the triad, still have an adequate deterrent. So, um, but this 
you know, modernization plan is being treated almost as if it's sacrosanct. Uh, everybody in the administration, when they testify, is asked to kind of bow down to it. Um, you know, the first Biden budget not only included the Pentagon's pre-existing plan, but things like sea launch cruise missiles that were introduced by Trump. Um, so I think it's, as you said, it's ripe for cuts and I think ripe for more careful consideration, which I'm hoping some of that will happen uh, during the administration's nuclear posture review. But, um, you know, what's happened so far is not uh, does not inspire hope in that regard. If we did get rid of uh, ICBMs, uh, how much would that save us? And also, if you could address, for those people who are very gung-ho on the full triad, what is their response to your argument that we don't need the ICBMs? Well, on the procurement front, you'd probably save $100 billion or more. And then operations over the lifetime would be another 150 or so. So overall, you might save $260 billion plus uh, by getting rid of ICBMs and not building this new one. Um, yeah, what are the arguments for keeping them? Well, one is, you know, what if they sink our subs and wipe out our bombers before they are airborne? Um, but if needed, you can have the bombers on alert. Uh, submarines are very difficult, if not impossible, to detect with current technology. Um, if there was a, a change in that, you could restructure your arsenal. But but it's very unlikely that uh, any country could, uh, even if it was a you know a, a two uh, delivery vehicle system, a, a dyad instead of a triad, um, you know wipe out the U.S. force before they could retaliate. And a very small number of weapons would be enough to cause massive destruction in any country that threatened to attack the United States. So you, you could have deterrence at much lower levels. Uh, we currently have about 1,550 deployed nuclear warheads. You can go well below that and still have an adequate deterrent. Uh, the other thing that is said is, well, what about China? What about Russia? They're building new weapons. Um, and I think there's no question they're investing in new nuclear weapons. But the question is, what kind of advantage would that really give them? If they want to waste money on that, feel free. Now, the, probably the biggest concern lately is some indication that China may be adding silos that could house ballistic missiles, uh, perhaps in the hundreds additional. Uh, but they only have uh, about two or 300 uh, warheads that they that could reach the United States. So even if they were to increase that, deterrence would hold. It's certainly not a, a development that we want to see happen, but I think the only way to do that is to not engage in a kind of modernization arms race, uh, but rather to kind of maintain deterrence and discuss perhaps putting aside some of these modernization programs, which, uh, you know, with Russia is already talks are underway. I think with China, given their much lower level uh, of their arsenal, would probably have to be kind of a, somewhat of a separate discussion. Uh, because if you if you had a three-way discussion among Russia, China, and the United States on arms control, China is so much lower in its current levels that it, you'd be talking past each other. But in terms of some sort of freeze on modernization, I think that's worth, worth a conversation. And in the meantime, a deterrence would hold. You've also written that military contractors are another ripe area for cuts. Explain why. 
Well, ever since the 90s, uh, when there was a huge merger boom, and you had Northrop by Grumman, uh, Lockheed merged with Martin Marietta, Boeing by McDonnell Douglas, uh, some of these companies bought up companies large and small, you know, dozen or more. Um, you've had a small group of companies that get the plurality, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the Pentagon contracts that are given out every year. So in 2020, the top five, uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics and Raytheon, those five companies got $166 billion in Pentagon prime contracts, which was more than a third of all the contracts handed out by the Pentagon. So they have a great advantage uh, when it comes to negotiating with the Pentagon because they're sort of too big to fail, or at least that's how they're perceived. Uh, and they can afford to spend on armies of lobbyists and campaign contributions. And often the Pentagon, once it gets rolling on a program, doesn't really have anywhere to turn. Uh, they've given a sole source contract to Northrop Grumman and the new ICBM. And, you know, so the, the power is shifting into their hands. The further along the program goes, uh, the more Northrop Grumman has sort of the Air Force and the Pentagon uh, back on their heels in terms of wanting to make any uh, changes. Um, there's also a whole other phenomenon of private contractors who do everything from, you know, carry guns in war zones to, uh, you know, supply meals to the troops to uh, work in various service sector uh, support systems from the Pentagon civilian workforce. And um, there's more than half a million of those private contractors employed by the Pentagon. And when uh, Robert Gates, when he was Secretary of Defense, was asked how many there were, he said he didn't really know. Uh, and they haven't really done a good job of trying to find out. Uh, but many of those contractors do work that could be done more cheaply and effectively by government employees or simply overlaps with it. And you don't need two people to do one function that could be done uh, by, by one of the two. So uh, we had looked at this in a task force we had called the Sustainable Defense Task Force. Uh, and the Project and Government Oversight has also done a lot of good work on this. Uh, but if you you cut 15% uh, of what you were spending on these private contractors, uh, you could save $250 billion or more over the next 10 years. And uh, just circling back to that CBO report, that's one of the things that they didn't look into. So there's that trillion is probably a starting point of where we could go uh, if we had a more rational kind of defense and uh, you know defense policy. I wonder if you can talk about some other areas that are potentially kind of low-hanging fruit. Ultimately, as we discussed in the beginning, uh, the size of the budget is a reflection of the expansiveness and ambition of the strategy. And if you have a strategy that says, well, we've got to be the policeman of the world, we've got to guard uh, naval checkpoints, we've got to protect Europe, we've got to protect Asia, we've got to confront China, we've got to confront Russia, we've got to be an external hegemon in the Middle East, trying to order that region and so on. If you have that kind of strategy, it's going to be very costly. But um, since uh, I don't see a radical shift in America's strategy uh, on that level, uh, you know, on the horizon, what are some other kind of low-hanging fruit areas um, that we might be able to sensibly cut um, without a substantial change in strategy? Well, I think certainly in the nuclear area, 
uh, deterrence is more than adequate to any strategy of, uh, you know, dealing with other great powers or regional contingencies or anything else. So I think that's one area. I think the F-35 could be phased out in favor of upgraded versions of existing systems, which would save billions or tens of billions of dollars. Uh, this point I mentioned about the contractor workforce and the redundancies in Pentagon overhead, I think that certainly could be dealt with. Um, there's a lot of overcharges on spare parts because we haven't empowered people to get in the, in the Pentagon, contract officers, to get good pricing information, to know what they're dealing with, uh, to to go after these companies and hold them to a standard as to what they can charge. Um, I think the Army, uh, even if China is your concern, I see no scenario under which there would be uh, a land war with China, so I think the Army can be cut back. I think vulnerable ships, like building more aircraft carriers, make no sense in a China scenario. So there's a lot there, even without a shift in strategy, which ultimately, of course, should be the goal, but is is hard to push through in Washington. Can you talk a little bit about the fact that the Pentagon can't pass an audit? This is met by most people, I think, with a kind of uh, shrug, um, but it seems to be a serious problem that one of the governmental institutions that receives the most funding uh, can't pass an audit. And we know that there's tons of fraud and abuse and waste. Well, yes. Um, there's been a few um, proposals to uh, limit Pentagon spending until they can show us how they're spending the existing funds or to penalize divisions that don't meet audit standards by reducing their budgets. Um, but on the whole, you know, certainly in the general public, it's probably not well known. I mean, the Pentagon was required as of 1990 to have books that could be audited. And here we are uh, more than 30 years later, that has not happened. Um, they've got computer systems that don't talk to each other. Uh, they don't put enough kind of people on the problem. Uh, they don't seem to, although they give lip service to it, really care. I think as long as you can get $700 billion plus per year and rising, uh, and you can get away with having sloppy books, it's going to continue to happen. Uh, now, what it means is, for example, they can't keep track of real property. They don't know not only real estate, but even in some cases, uh, usable uh, weapons or ammunition or uniforms or you know actual supplies uh, that are being bought in duplicate because they don't know what they already possess. And then, of course, if you want to figure out are you being double charged? Are there phony contractors who are just raking in money without supplying services? I think an audit might help with that. It's probably not the be all and end all. I think you also would need, um, you know, empowering contract officers, inspectors general, uh, other ways to get at that problem. Um, if you look at the special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction, which was well resourced and well focused, they unearthed example after example of waste, fraud, and abuse in the Afghan war, not just costing money, but putting our troops at risk. And so I think there are models that could be developed that in conjunction with an audit uh, could eliminate a lot of waste. But you know, the bottom line is you still need to figure out what you want to buy. I mean, if our books are perfectly audited and we still bought weapon systems we don't need, uh, that would not be uh, 
you know, an acceptable outcome. But nor is it acceptable to have the biggest agency in the government not able to tell you how it's spending your tax money. Let me ask you about um, how we prospects for for getting back on track. You know, um, we've discussed the fact that many members of Congress, who are the ones that ultimately decide on allocating money towards uh, defense, uh, are kind of captured. They have defense industries that have strategically established manufacturing uh, centers in their districts. They're uh, aggressive lobbyists. Um, Then you have this other problem of actually uh, a sort of revolving door of retiring generals moving into lucrative defense industry positions. And then you have this overall problem of this kind of uh, blending of private and public institutions to create this military industrial complex, as Dwight Eisenhower called it. And a lot of that really just seems like a recipe for uh, continued large budgets that um, are extremely wasteful, uh, that don't pay attention to the kinds of uh, excesses that we've discussed in this podcast. And so without a really radical national level discussion on changing strategy and sort of adopting a more ambitious foreign policy in general, I'm sort of puzzled as to how we get to, uh, you know, more reasonable budgetary discussions. Well, that's the trillion dollar question. Uh, I think, you know, first of all, it's uh, independent analysts and organizations have to continue to put forward alternate plans, ways to rethink security. Uh, But then there's got to be public pressure, uh, which would require much more detailed public education. And I think also just a comparison of, you know, well, if we've lost over 700,000 lives from COVID, uh, more than every war since World War I combined, uh, perhaps that's a greater threat to us than what China does in the South China Sea. Uh, Likewise, if the planet's on fire, uh, you know, that's a situation that has to be dealt with aggressively. Uh, but if you're wasting money on aircraft carriers you don't need and the huge nuclear buildup, there's limits to what you can invest in other areas. So I think rethinking security, promoting alternatives, I think there also has to be an alternative economic strategy. Uh, how do you deal with displacement in some of these areas when there's a shift in spending? Um, and with military bases, there's been some success. Uh, there's been places where they've actually created more jobs the civilian sector than they had when a base closed. Manufacturing, it's been much harder. Uh, But I don't think, it's not necessarily the case that, you know, a submarine plant has to suddenly turn out, uh, you know, wind turbines. I think the point is regionally and locally, there have to be alternative jobs that that pay decently. And that'll involve some coordination at the federal, state, and local level. uh, When there's alternative investments to be had, try to retrain some of the workers or provide income support. And I think, you know, that problem is not as big as the industry would like us to think. They've been shrinking in terms of numbers of companies, uh, the numbers of weapons produced per amount spent. Uh, They're very capital intensive in their operations. It's almost more like a boutique operation in some cases than kind of a mass production factory in a lot of these cases. Um, So when they spread their jobs across the country, 
they're spreading them pretty thin. Uh, and so some of these areas, you know, if, if the member would push a little harder, I think they'd find out that, um, you know, the vast majority of their local economy, uh, you know, 99% or more is not dependent on that flow of money from the Pentagon. Um, then I also think we need to put limits on the revolving door, have a cooling off period before generals and admirals and uh, acquisition officials and others who have had influence over our policy can go to work for contractors uh, so that their contacts aren't quite as fresh. And also the reporting has to be much more rigorous than it has been. A lot of uh, people have not been adequately reporting where they go after they leave government service. And it's been left to groups like Project on Government Oversight. There's a database on this. There's a recent good Government Accountability Office report uh, that looks at this. But a lot more has to be done to curb that revolving door, I think, if we're going to make progress. Um, So, you know, there's no magic solution. I think Eisenhower was right when he said we need an alert and knowledgeable citizenry. And in the time we're living in, uh, when a lot of people won't accept even very basic facts. Obviously, that's a huge challenge. But I think you don't need the whole public mobilized. You need a kind of informed constituency that's going to be uh, relentless about trying to change course on this issue. So, um, yeah, it's going to be hard work. Uh, but I, I think there are elements there to work with uh, where we could see a difference. Even when they um, you know, tried to increase the budget, Majority of Democrats voted against it, which is a start. There was also a vote to reduce the Pentagon budget by 10%, which got a much smaller vote, but it's a core to build on. And there was a few years ago, you would never get a resolution to cut the Pentagon by that amount, even brought up for conversation. So I, I think there is potential in Congress, but they're going to need you know, a big push from citizens groups and their constituents if they're going to go further. Bill Hartung, thanks for joining. Yes, thanks so much for having me.